Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. An all-island approach cannot work for Ireland, as opposition calls for clarity on the vaccine supply and rollout, and the zero COVID strategy gains traction on the backbenches. We'll be joined in studio by Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou MacDonald. With tensions escalating over the AstraZeneca contracts with the EU, and Germany no throwing its use for over 65s into doubt, the UK urges against vaccine nationalism. We'll be joined by Tory MP Andrew Bridgen, who believes the UK is being made a scapegoat. Later, we'll be discussing the two-tier economy and widening inequality gaps in Ireland, as public debt now stands at €44,000 per person. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. first guest this evening is the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald. Thank you very much for joining us in studio. There's an awful lot of debate as to the things that need to be done now by government in relation to COVID-19. We'll get to things like schools and education later. But the first thing I want to ask you about is this quarantine policy for people coming into the country. What's your position now on the government's position? Well, look, um, I think this is something that had been raised with government for a very, very long time. Um, they chose not at an early stage to have a proper testing regime at our ports and airports. Uh, and I think that was a mistake then. And I think now the action that they have taken is frankly insufficient. Um, I think what we need is a very clear statement from Ireland, from our government, that anyone landing on our island will face a mandatory quarantine of 14 days. And the reason for this is not to punish people or to have an excessively hard regime, but simply put, it's this. Nobody should be coming here unless their purposes are essential. And um, certainly anybody watching footage of people coming back from Lanzarote or other places where they've been off on holidays, I mean, that was infuriating, but more than that, and what, it's so what dangerous. What would you do with those people? They come back and if you have been away, uh, first of all, you don't return to the island without a negative test and then you face a mandatory quarantine and you have a second test five or six days in or as the medical and scientific advice is. You see, the new strains, the new variants of this virus are a game changer, Matt. And I, I think people's concern now is not just the virus and the level of community transmission, which is extremely worrying, but the prospect of importing more virus and different variants and strains. So we need to do everything though, to Because stop people that. who have to go for essential reasons, such as truckers who are going yeah. in, and out, would they get an exception under that? Or is it everybody for fear that they might have the virus? To be I back? think you need a very strong regime for everybody. But of course, there is a difference between essential travel onto the island and non-essential travel. Um, but the, the message has to be sent out very loudly 
very clearly, you know, don't come to Ireland, any part of our island, unless your purposes are essential. And I think, unfortunately, the move that the government has made is almost a halfway measure. I think it falls short of what people expected. Um, and, and there is an issue here also, Matt, around public confidence. People are, some people I know I've been talking to are a step away from despair or are in moments of despair now. People need to have strong leadership from government and a very clear message. And that's what people wanted this yeah, week. But and unfortunately, they didn't get it. Is it possible to do it. that if it isn't done in the six counties? Um, well, it is, but uh, the truth is to have a really effective regime, it needs to be all Ireland. And there's polling research out today, as, as it happens from Lucid uh, Talk, and they reflect a majority, a substantial majority in the North in favour of the kind of measure that I have described here. It's just very unfortunate. But then that, why doesn't the executive follow the will of the people? Well, because there has been, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, a reluctance on the part of some of our colleagues in unionism to go down uh, that road. And secondly, because there hasn't been a concerted effort by the government in Dublin well, to make honest, that happen. If you have find it so difficult to get on with unionists in the north on the executive, do you really expect what they regard as a foreign government to actually hold sway over their thinking? But look, it's it's not a case of people getting on with anyone. Do you know what I mean? This is a very well, it serious is, isn't life. It? And isn't that when you no, have a situation that you have to get on with implementing the measures beyond politics for public health of reasons? Of course. But th this is a matter that is beyond the kind of mundane day-to-day -day politics. And, and yes, uh, a section of unionism has been resistant. But bear in mind, a memorandum of understanding was signed up to very early on. Um, I think that was the moment that the government in Dublin in particular had to take that ball and run with it and demonstrate the value of an all-Ireland approach, whether but it's in Sinn testing or tracing. Could have done more within the executive to assist the government in the South to get that all-Ireland approach? Well, actually, as it happens, Sinn Féin, and in particular my colleague Michelle O'Neill, got very considerable criticism because she took a very strong stance uh, in the executive um, whether it was on matters pertaining to school closures and other public health measures that unionism was resisting and that she was uh, pursuing for the common good. But, but now we're in a situation where finally, almost a year on, uh, we hear from Dublin that there will be finally sharing of data for, in terms of people landing on the island. That should have happened months ago. I'm told it is going to happen now. That's very welcome. And we need to build on that because the best way to keep any of us safe is to keep all of us safe. But and that means an all-Ireland approach. But do we need a two-island approach? There are people saying that maybe it, to persuade unionists that they can't have flights between Dublin and Belfast is to persuade London that there's going to be a clampdown on domestic flights as they regard it to be domestic. Yeah. And we have, we have fielded that proposal as well. And um, that certainly is a way that you can achieve the kind of all-Ireland coherence that I've just described. And of course, every measure and every approach has to be fully um, investigated and fully pursued. But it's wrong for the government in Dublin to say, well, sure, we can't make that happen. That's nothing got to do with us. It, the truth is 
the government is a co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement. They have a specific relationship with London. And my God, if this public health emergency isn't the definition of the national interest and a moment of national emergency, well, then I don't know what is. So to those who would say, well, it's not our problem, it's all about the, the parties on the executive, I would say, well, that's not really true. That's half the story. And Belfast has to measure up. And I would urge our unionist colleagues to reevaluate their position. But, you know, Dublin hasn't played ball either. And I think that's where the big change needs to start. So I hope we'll see more vigour and greater enthusiasm for that All-Ireland agenda now. Just on the issue of foreign travel, the Belfast Telegraph reporting today that Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill will not be going to the White House mm -hmm. on St. Patrick's Day. I was interviewing Pascal Donoghue on radio today. He was very strong in the belief that if it is possible that Micheál Martin should go for the traditional meeting with Joe Biden. What would your position be in that? Would that be in the Irish national interest, as he believes? I think it would be very unwise. Um, and I absolutely appreciate how important that moment is uh, for Ireland, for the Irish in America, for the Irish internationally. But I think the circumstances in which we find ourselves, where we are saying to people, stay at home, don't leave your home. And I mean, come March, uh, I, I suspect that we will still have fairly strict um, public health measures still in place. So I, I think it would be unwise uh, for the Taoiseach to travel uh, on that occasion, as important as that moment is. Uh, and I'd be very surprised if, if he did make that journey. I, I wouldn't advise it at all. Some of your colleagues in the opposition benches, People Before Profit and Labour, want to pursue a zero COVID strategy and want you to join with them in that. Are you tempted to do so? Well, I think what everybody has been saying is that we need to, to pursue maximum suppression. And some people, some colleagues use the terminology zero COVID. But I think the, the greater point is that we need decisive action on international travel, as we have discussed. We still need to get tracing, testing and tracing right, by the way. Don't forget that. As we emerge from the very severe uh, public health restrictions and as we move to some form of looser normality, you still need your testing and your tracing regimes to well, be effective. Well, that resumes tomorrow after yeah, the recent burdens But can I just faced. say, work needs still to be done on that. Um, and then, of course, the overarching piece around an all-Ireland approach on international travel, but also on, on testing and tracing uh, across the border. So uh, we are all of one mind uh, in terms of maximising and strengthening government uh, measures in that regard. And then of course, on the matter of vaccination, we need clarity from government. We've had and confusion. we get to vaccination yeah. in a second, because it does seem that NFET at this stage does seem reasonably happy with what the government is implementing. And indeed, tonight, Philip Nolan of NFET said that uh, it's not a really false promise to say that if we put certain things in place now that we can get to level zero or level one on the framework in a matter of weeks or months. He seems to be reasonably confident about the measures as being implemented by government. Well, I, well, I mean, they, they advise government, so uh, I, I'm not surprised that, that that would be the case. And also, uh, it should be said that the public health uh, experts have consistently stated that, in their view, what's called the zero COVID approach is not the way to go. But I think rather than getting, you know, wrapped up in, in, in that, I think that the more important matter is that we agree that we pursue in a clear, organised, orderly, coherent fashion um, 
the strongest possible measures that we can now to keep people safe. For how safe. long? And what are your criteria for the easing of restrictions, given that they have a major economic impact and they're also having a major impact on many people's mental health? Absolutely, for sure. There, of that, there is no doubt. I mean, the criteria... Um, for safety thresholds are correctly set and decided by public health experts. So they will measure things like the, the, the ore rate, the levels of, of community transmission, um, the general environment. That's the, first, that's the first thing. And I think we need to very thoughtfully step our way through the next phases beyond March 5th. I mean, one of the big disappointments when people uh, heard the government announcement around the extension of the public health restrictions was the fact that they got to March 5th and then they seemed to kind of fall off a cliff. There was no sense, organised sense, of what happens next. So I think what the government needs to do now, in just a very clear and a very honest way, a very straightforward way, is to set out the various pillars. So what's happening now in terms of testing and tracing? How are we beefing up that capacity? What is the rollout, the re real targets that can be met in terms of the vaccination uh, programme? Um, and and what, uh, in, in a stepped way, progress are they prepared to make for full alignment north to south? So I, I think if people have a sense of that, Matt, even though things are very difficult and you couldn't overstate the difficulties at this stage, I think people take comfort from a sense of direction and clarity and purpose. And that's, that's what's been missing. Are here. you even more cautious yourself? Because in fairness, back in November, when the restrictions were eased, you did welcome them at the time, the easing of the restrictions. I, well, at the time, I mean, what I had asked for, and um, I was widely, uh, widely echoed on this, was for a sense of common sense and compassion. Because I, I'm very conscious that we have been through an incredible year. People have been out of work. People have been sick. People have been bereaved. And I believed, and I still believe, that at Christmas time, that level, some latitude had to be allowed for people to have the comfort and the company of their families. That was so my priority. So you would have some sympathy priority. for the government's thinking at the time and the decision-making? Well, well, absolutely. I think we, we all did. Uh, I think we all know now, with the benefit of hindsight that the extent of that loosening is something certainly, and in fairness, if people had the power, if had a crystal ball, um, I, I think would have been judged differently. And, and so we need to learn from that because we've seen different variants and strands emerge. That story is not finished. This virus mutates and changes and gets ahead of us all the time. So the job now for government is not just to catch up, but for to keep us safe and to get us ahead. OK, what about the Leaving Cert? You wrote a lengthy piece for the Irish Daily Mail today in relation to that, suggesting that we needed to have an alternative yes. to the traditional exams. But what can be in that alternative? Because at least in 2020, the teachers who had to do the predictive grades had fifth-year exams and the mocks to go by. This 2021 Leaving Cert class doesn't. Exactly. And... Um, we are now at a place where certainly last year when I was, you know, we we're talking about the Leaving Cert students, the class of 2020, little did we know that the class of 2021 would be even more disadvantaged. Their fifth year disrupted, their sixth year disrupted. And I just think at this stage, I mean, Monday is the beginning of February. It's St. Bridget's Day, you know, it's the beginning of spring. 
to suggest that we we go th- towards the summer, you know, as 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 normal and have the traditional so exam. The, but isn't what realistic. is the alternative? How so do you do it? I, I think calculated grades were, were hugely problematic. Not least they, in some instances, they wound up in the courts because people didn't believe that they had gotten fair play. My own view is that we need an alternative model that is on some version of continuous assessment. I also believe that the teachers, our teaching professionals, have made very clear that they are not happy to be grading or accrediting their own students. And I understand that. I think it puts everybody in the wrong position. So it has to be externally marked and accredited. So there's a bit of organization to happen with that. I also think that if it is possible in June for those students who wish to, to take a traditional exam, they should be afforded that opportunity. And I've I've spoken to, my God, hundreds of Leaving Cert students and parents and teachers, and there are mixed views. There's one very clear sense of common purpose, and that is to do right by these young people who literally have been put through the ringer, and many of whom are very, very stressed at this stage. Last night on this programme, Tónis de Leo Varadkar made a particular claim about Sinn Féin, which you weren't here to defend. I said, I will put it to you tonight. The funeral of Eamon McCourt, the large crowds that were at that, and he said a number of Sinn Féin councillors. Had you not learnt from the Bobby Story funeral? Well, look, um, we've talked about difficult situations in this pandemic. Matt, nothing is more difficult than to be bereaved in circumstances where you can't grieve and mourn in the normal way. And this was a family funeral. Um, And I don't want to say anything that adds to a grieving family's upset. There were very large crowds there. And there was a quasi-military display as well. Well, they might dispute that. It was the family's funeral. Um, But certainly all of us, everybody... Uh, has to abide by the the standards and the public health guidelines. I mean, that's the bottom line here. So um, that that's as much as I can say on that topic. And I say it very mindful of the fact that everybody who has suffered loss in these times, it's very, very hard, but the rules are the rules, particularly when community transmission is so high. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll leave it there for part one. Our thanks to Mary Lou MacDonald for joining us. After the break, as the AstraZeneca vaccine supply rug continues and Germany fails to greenlight its use for the over 65s, how will it impact on our vaccination plans here? We'll also get the view from the UK as tensions with EU escalate. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. Well, we're joined in studio now by Jack Chambers of Fianna Fáil, the Government Chief Whip and Minister of State, and also by Kingston Mills, 
Professor of Experimental Immunology at Trinity College Dublin. Uh, first, though, reports in the UK suggest that the EU is demanding UK-produced supplies of the AstraZeneca vaccine. We're joined via Skype by the Conservative MP, Andrew Bridgen. Andrew, thank you for joining us. What's this about you thinking the EU has messed up the procurement process and is trying to make the UK some kind of scapegoat? Well, I think it's clear that the European Union have um, badly mismanaged the procurement of the vaccines for the European citizens. And it's a political hot potato. Um, and clearly they're trying to deflect responsibility, first of all, onto AstraZeneca um, and secondly, onto the UK government, who've got a pretty good record of uh, vaccinating their population. And it's, it's a particularly political embarrassment to the European Union. But in what way is it really a mess up, given that a contract was signed between the European Commission and AstraZeneca and the drug company is failing to supply the amount it's contracted to supply? Well, that's, that's all probably true, but it's not the full story. The fact is that the UK government uh, had signed a contract three months before. Uh, production facilities have got to be arranged, and that gave AstraZeneca time to develop and fine-tune their production capacity in the UK to fulfil the contract with the UK government. The EU claimed that they waited three months to negotiate better terms and conditions. Well, given that the AstraZeneca vaccine was being produced at cost, £3 a dose, I don't see how three months of delay we're going to get a better price than we're not making a profit. Uh, all you're doing is paying for the production cost. A new facility was being developed in Belgium. It hasn't had as long as the UK to bed in and they've got production problems and bear in mind that as we sit here tonight the European Union haven't even uh, authorized use of the AstraZeneca vaccine and indeed in uh, in Germany they're casting aspersions on the efficacy of its use for over 65s I think what we're seeing is is, um, is basically a, a, Euro a European Union um, bullying uh, AstraZeneca and uh, a, a huge amount of intimidation and and really, it's, it's pretty unedifying and it's no way to carry on. You say casting aspersions upon the medication, but could it be that perhaps they're just being more careful and are safer? Would it not make you fear that perhaps you have been vaccinating people in the UK and it won't give you the effect that you're striving for? Well, our medical experts have, uh, have given assurances that we're working on, on clear uh, um, grounds with research to the, the science and Astra. AstraZeneca, and it's very interesting that uh, you, the, the Germans have decided to cast aspersions on a vaccine which they desperately want to get hold of at any cost. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't really add up to anyone who thinks about the situation at all. Thank you very much, Andrew Bridgen, for joining us this evening. Jack Chambers, this mess, how much of a crisis is it causing for the government's vaccination programme? Well, clearly there, there's this engagement between the European Commission and the company Oxford AstraZeneca on, uh, on the scale of, of, and the reduced amount of vaccines that the country and the European Union will receive. But I think the rhetoric there from Andrew is like a continuity of the Brexit rhetoric we saw, we, we saw uh, in, in recent years. I think we have to... What if he's right? We have to steer away from this kind of partisan nationalist approach to, to the vaccination rollout. The European Commission is going to try and enforce the contractual obligations that Oxford AstraZeneca has with the European bloc. If they don't follow through on that and the 
and Oxford AstraZeneca do not uh, fulfil their contractual obligations, it will have significant impacts on our capacity to roll out the vaccine. Uh, and that and that yeah, and that's the, clear. The that's clear, particularly is one in issue. What if? the European Commission and the health re regulators decide the same as the Germans, that this isn't good enough for over 65s. Isn't that a major problem, given that you've placed so much store in this? Well, look, we're, our, what the, play, the store we've placed as a country is the supply we've received. And if you look at the overall vaccination table, uh, we've been effective in rolling out uh, vaccines in January. Uh, and the sequencing, as decided by the National Immunisation Advisory Committee, prioritises over 65s. At once our healthcare workers get vaccinated in the coming weeks, we want to prioritise that cohort of uh, in our population who are most vulnerable uh, to COVID. Uh, and if we don't receive the supply of Oxford AstraZeneca, or there is, like we've seen the... Uh, decision from the German uh, Vaccine Commission on Oxford AstraZeneca for plus 65s will await the decision tomorrow by the EMA on, on what their outcome is and their scientific opinion. And we have to have an evidence-based decision on that. If, if it affects the over 65s, obviously we still have a supply of the Pfizer vaccine that will be coming through, but it will uh, delay the pace of rollout. And that's, uh, that's, okay, a, that's unfortunate. Is it possible that the British moved too quickly in approving the AstraZeneca vaccine or that Europe has been too slow? I don't think the British moved too quickly. I think um, they were very efficient in, in doing what they did. I think, um, referring to the German um, Medical Association's pronouncement on not giving it to over 65s, Emer Cook, the Irish woman who heads the EMA, yesterday said that they may look at not licensing in all age groups. And that was a very strong hint that this vaccine may not be licensed for over 65s by the EMA. Of course, if, if that does happen, it will, as you said, um, make it difficult for the plans that Ireland have to vaccinate 700,000 people by the end of March. So it is. It was. I've heard this vaccine being called a game changer by some of our people in government. I think that was a very dangerous thing to do because it was putting too much emphasis on a single vaccine when there's a lot of vaccines in the development that we haven't heard about. And we've heard tonight about another vaccine now, the Novavax vaccine, which has 95% efficacy against the same type of virus that the Pfizer and Moderna and 85% efficacy against the variants. So that's absolutely fantastic news. And this, this vaccine in my opinion, is the best vaccine that's going to come on the market. This but, is past phase three trials in the UK. Is this another British vaccine? Could we end no, up with another row getting supplies? No, this, this is actually one? an American vaccine. So it's an American company, Novavax. It happens to have done the trial in the UK and in, in South Africa and in, in the US. So it's it, But it does have a manufacturing site in the UK as well as in the US. And it will manufacture the vaccine both in the US and, 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 and given the UK. your expertise and what you've looked at, what's been made available on this, do you think that this one might be one of the best ones? Yeah, I predicted this some weeks ago that this was going to be the best vaccine. And and the data now that the, this is early data, we weren't expecting this data tonight. We were expecting this data in March. But the reason it's probably been released, and I haven't read the reports yet, because I only heard about it literally 10 minutes ago, is because um, it's probably reached the level of efficacy already to be able to announce it, which is fantastic news. Now, the only Rich is that the European Union have yet to conclude a deal with this company. The UK, Australia and the US have already got deals in place in several other countries, but yet the EU, the EU doesn't. So does that mean, is there suggestions that the EU has been slow, tardy in doing what it should do to secure supplies for the people of the European Union? I was very surprised that they hadn't done a deal. If they'd looked at the science, they would have seen that this was one of the best vaccines that was going to come along. All the preclinical data 
and the, the early phase one trial showed that this vaccine was up there as one of the best. Um, in terms of production of what we call neutralizing antibodies, this, this um, vaccine was, was the best. And um, you know, that was there for everyone to see. Any scientist that looked at those, that information could have figured that out. So why wouldn't the EU get the contracts I, in I have place no idea why they happened. I, I understand that they have concluded discussions, which is probably a good sign and probably suggests that we, we are going to get an announcement. Certainly that will focus the minds after tonight's announcement on the efficacy, potential efficacy of that vaccine. Jack, would this make you worry that hitching our wagon to the EU star all the time doesn't necessarily always the best thing for us, that they may be slowing down and hindering getting the best vaccines for Ireland? Well, look, they have, they have arranged, they have purchasing agreements with a, with a number of manufacturers, but I defer to the expertise of, of Kingston and others, and, uh, and clearly there's a lot of scientists within the EMA and, and other parts of the European Commission uh, who are obviously tracking that data and are in, uh, involving themselves in the negotiations. I think from an Irish perspective, uh, we're be benefiting from the fact that the EU is purchasing vaccines on block and we're getting a, a ratio of them uh, from an Irish perspective uh, when we could be competing against major states who can outfinance us uh, in terms of vac vaccination. We're not getting supply. as many as we thought or as quickly. And isn't there also an issue with communication as to the rollout of the vaccines? It seemed the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly was quite confused today in the Doyle as to what actually has been the number of doses that have been given out. I think, in fairness to the Minister, he referenced the average number of vaccines, which is true, over 40,000 in his remarks when I think he was asked about the exact number that arrived in in a particular week. Um, and uh, he gave an answer which was which referenced the average. Um, but as, as, as Minister for Health, he has sought to prioritise with the vaccination task force the quick and effective rollout of the vaccines that are arriving into the country. And when you look at the European uh, League tables, Ireland has effectively rolled out our vaccine as it has entered the country. But I accept that the... Does he have too much on his plate? Isn't this a problem that there has been calls from the opposition that we should have a minister in charge of the procurement and the distribution of vaccines? That you, as well as the Minister for Health has enough on his plate at the best of times rather than now in the middle of a pandemic, also has responsibility now for this mandatory quarantining as well. Surely it's too much for one person. Well, I think any Minister for Health in the middle of a pandemic, the, the clear priority for them is to manage the, obviously the effect of public health measures in the context of a quarantine and also the vaccination roller, which is a key pillar of our public health strategy. Uh, and Minister Why Donnelly... Why not give it to somebody else who can devote the time to have the political responsibility? No. After all, finance and public expenditure have split into two ministries. Why not have health looking after what's going on in the hospitals being the responsibility for the Minister for Health, somebody else in charge of the vaccines? But all of those issues are very much intertwined and there's a vaccination task force which is we, uh, meeting regularly uh, to give uh, bring about the effective rollout of the vaccine. And if you look at the data, we are effective in, in, our, in our distribution of the vaccine. If you look at what's, what we've done in the long-term care facilities uh, and also over half frontline workers in their, our health system have been vaccinated. But the, the problem, the issue we have at the moment is uncertainty around supply. Uh, and that will fluctuate, I, I believe, over the coming weeks. Half with the... of those in the healthcare settings. I mean, again, with nursing homes and stuff, it hasn't been quite as quick, has it, as there the were, Minister there had were, been implying there were, in the there were some, there, were, there were some issues with clusters in the long-term care 
facilities which affected the rollout in some of those facilities but everyone in the nursing home setting uh, that could have received one uh, has been vaccinated and all the others are being prioritised who are still awaiting a vaccine. It's important we, 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 we actually vaccinate those who are highest at risk and that's our hospitals and our, our long-term care. So would you facilities. like to see a minister specifically looking after the vaccines with responsibility for that and not have to worry about other things? I, I, I definitely think we need you know, very direct leadership on this, both on testing, vaccine rollout, and all the measures, the restriction measures that, that, are, that are necessary for ensuring that we don't have the South African Brazilian variant um, in Ireland. So I think this is key. I mean, you, you know, you, that data tonight on the Novavax vaccine shows that the vaccine works much better against the, um, the original virus than it does against the variant. So there's already, already sort of a worry that the, the virus is evading the immune response, making the vaccine slightly less effective. And that was what was predicted a few days ago from clinical studies, especially the, the, the South African, the Brazilian variant. So we really have to keep those variants out of Ireland. Yeah, given that we have variants coming from other countries and that they seem to spread much more rapidly, where do you stand on the issue of foreign travel at present and quarantining people coming into the country? Well, I, I mean, I'm, 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 I welcome the, the new measures, but I think that they're still um, not gone far enough. Um, I think we have to absolutely have mandatory um, negative tests. So nobody should be allowed to actually board a flight um, without having a negative test c coming to Ireland. So other EU, EU countries are going to do this anyway. So, so you know, there's the, the excuse that I've heard, and I sat in the studio back in March, with the, with the Tornishta, who, when we argued about, about flights coming in from Italy. And right throughout the process, there's been weakness in terms of imposing restrictions on travel. And all was saying that we're going to follow the EU line on this. Now is the time to put in the, these measures. And the measures we need to have are a test prior to travel where you're not allowed to board the flight until you have that negative test. There's no point in putting restrictions on people when they're already here. You stop them coming in by making sure they don't get in a flight unless they have a negative test. When they arrive, they isolate for five days or quarantine for five days, then they have a test. That's a much better, in my view, way of doing it than and making quarantine for that? Should days. they be allowed to travel home or should they be made to go to a hotel? To the problem with travelling home, it's almost impossible to stop transmission from within a family. And we've heard in the last few days that, that over 50% of all the cases we have are, are, are in, in homes. The transmission is occurring in homes. So it's impossible to stop transmission in a home. So if you go to a home where there's another person, that person goes to the supermarket, you can't stop the transmission. So the only way you're going to do it, and this is the way Australia is doing it, if you go to Australia right now, you're forced to go straight to a hotel room. You have to stay there. We heard this about the Australian, the tennis players that went to go there to, to play in the, in the open in, in Australia. Stay for 14 days and then you, 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 you're, you're allowed to go Jack back Chambers, to business. Listening to what Kingston Mills has set out for us, that looks like the measures that we're about to bring in, and it's going to be by the sounds of weeks before we do, are simply too weak. Well, no, look, what we've tried to do, look, I acknowledge and there's public concern around travel, um, but the numbers of travelling are, are significantly lower even this week compared to two or three weeks ago. Um, and we, we, as a government, we are acting and we have a concern around the variants that are there. And that's why in the, in the highest risk countries, so the South American countries in South Africa, we've sought to remove visa-free travel. Uh, there'll be a mandatory quarantine in a, in a, in a designated facility um, with, with pre-PCR tests. In terms of... we also They are, don't come via direct flights. They come through hubs in Europe so. or they come via Britain. But we've heard Kingston outline the reasons why people shouldn't go from the airport to their homes 
why they should be put into quarantine. So well, why not do it? Well, well at the moment, the, the, we obviously have... We're, we're introducing regulations to underpin the government decision, but we also need to introduce and progress legislation on the whole matter of quarantine. Uh, and we've been clear as a government we'll, it's going to be kept... The options will be kept open. Uh, and in, in so terms of... In why terms are you of, talking about options being kept open and delaying things when we're in the middle of a pandemic, when we've had more new confirmed cases in the month of January than we had all, all of 2020? And we're talking about measures that'll still take weeks to introduce and may not be effective enough. Oh, well, when you look at the numbers entering Ireland, they're significantly down. That's the first thing. And we're, 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 we're also trying to stop all non-essential travel with the, with the Gardaí uh, at our ports and airports. Uh, we're increasing the fines for that. Uh, we're also strengthening the passenger locator form. Uh, we're trying to, like what Deputy McDonald said... That that's very late, that people have been given out about that passenger locator form and the follow-up phone calls for months. And only now, after we've had a massive month of damage, are you doing something about well, it? We're, we're, we're addressing that. And also the issue around... Uh, we are saying mandatory quarantine at home uh, and the Gardaí will be enforcing the, the quarantine in, in the home. But we're, we're being clear... We're, we're keeping, uh, government will, will keep this under review uh, and we will take the necessary public health approach. But it's important to give the overall context as well. Like the, the, late, the latest data is that around clusters and outbreaks, we have had one associated with travel out of 667 Kingston, outbreaks. you're shaking your so head. What Absolutely I, what shaking I, what my head. What thing is, just, <laughs> no, no, let Kingston respond. He's the expert. Yeah. OK, so, you know, people claim that, oh, we've only got a... 1% of our cases are associated with travel. That's directly associated with travel, but all the indirect ones. We wouldn't have the UK variant in Ireland now, which is counting for 70% of our cases if we had travel restrictions, proper travel restrictions in place. We, we, we will allow in the Brazilian and the, and the um, South African variant if we don't impose the travel restrictions that we need to impose. And that's because why people that's don't why come directly we, from those countries, they come indirectly. And that's why we've, we're prioritising legislation to actually accommodate for that in the context of, of quarantine. And that's, it's being advanced as a matter of priority by government. The, kind of the uh, legislation yeah, takes we, weeks we, and the quarantine well, is we, not we, sufficient we, according we, to we the likes of Kingston. We, we can't... The, the, you can't introduce uh, public health measures that aren't grounded in law, and that's why we're prioritising it. But the, the government, uh, if you look at the overall public health position, uh, the, the case numbers are dropping. We need to continue the... Uh, Did you the show public, that up to we, we need to continue the... Like, if you listen to what Neffet have said this evening, it's about... They've actually welcomed a lot of the government measures, uh, and Tony Holden has said that... Uh, and we followed on. We followed the whole suite of. We've extended level five restrictions. We're still at 1,500 cases a day, and that doesn't account the asymptomatics. We're really at about 3,000 cases a day. In the beginning of December, we were under 300. So we're tenfold where we were at the beginning of December. We have a long way to go I before we're that. going to get the numbers down to where I, we're I, going. I accept we have, a, we have a long way to go, and okay. that's why we've, we're, we've extended restrictions for six weeks. We leave it there on that. Our thanks to Kingston Mills for joining us. Minister of State Jack Chambers is staying with us. Because after the break, with the burden of public debt set to rise to almost €48,000 per person, how is that driving inequalities in our society? We'd also be hearing from independent TD Michael Healy Ray.
Welcome back. Well, the Government Chief Whip and Minister of State, Jack Chambers, has stayed with us. We're also joined by Michelle Murphy, Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland, and by Independent TD Michael Healy-Ray, who joins us via Skype. News today, Michael, that 45% of Kerry's workforce is on the pandemic unemployment payment. Would that suggest that Kerry has become completely over-reliant on tourism? that uh, our local authority, for instance, uh, it brought in a safe streets program, which operated very successfully. Our people involved in the tourism industry made sure that people were safe uh, when they were visiting their premises, the hotels, the restaurants, the public houses, the business premises. And people had a safe and happy experience when they came to Kerry. So what that proves is that when this country will open up again and when people will be able to move around the country, I would hope that people will be able to come to Kerry and have a safe and good experience in the county like they had when we opened up uh, last summer. The numbers were reduced, though, of tourists and the season was much shorter. How fearful are you that, given what we're hearing about a slower rollout than expected of the vaccine, the that it's going to be another very bad year? Uh, well, what will happen this year, hopefully, is that if we are able to open up, that people from within the country will be able to go on holidays, whether it's to the west of Ireland or down here to the south, and move around safely within the country. Obviously, we won't be in a position to welcome people from abroad, so we'll be promoting staycations in a big way. And obviously, we're better in the whole of Ireland to go to than to County Kerry. OK, Michelle, do we have a situation, though, that a lot of rural Ireland, that we're now seeing an economic imbalance, too much of a dependency on things like tourism, no matter how well they might be done, and not a buffer for things like have happened? Yes, you're sort of seeing a, a two-track economy. The domestic economy is suffering more. And the thing is, you know, rural Ireland sort of successfully moved away from an agricultural base and tourism, accommodation, food, retail, manufacturing, storage... They're sort of the, you know, the drivers of the rural economy now, but they're among the sectors most severely affected by COVID. And actually Kerry, Cavan, Clare, Donegal and Westmead were the counties identified last year as having economies most exposed to COVID-19. So and having 45 percent of uh, the workforce in Kerry on the pandemic unemployment rate just, you know, 
is this playing out in real time? But what's really concerning for me is that the workers in that sector, those four sectors, they're among they're in the lowest two quintiles, so they're the lowest 40% in terms of income, but those households only have a financial buffer of 1,000 euros. So those people have been on a pandemic unemployment maybe for almost a year or in and out of employment, but you know they only have 1,000 euros in savings. So what does it mean for them in terms of struggling so many households are struggling, they can't meet unexpected expenses. And what is our long-term plan to support those incomes? Because realistically, it's going to take a significant amount of time for those sectors to open back up. What is the long-term plan to continue supporting people? If we hear all the stories about people who are financially fine, who have savings, there's an enormous cohort of people, and particularly young people as well as rural people. What's their future? Yeah, there's a, there's, the data is very concerning around uh, particularly youth unemployment and the potential scarring effects that the pandemic will leave on our economy and society. That's why there will be a national economic plan prioritised by government, uh, which is to ensure balanced regional development and, and to promote the digital transformation and opportunities across the country for young people, but also try and embed opportunities, say, if you take, for example, some of the government priorities around housing, around climate action, that we, we give young people opportunities. And I know Minister Harris is prioritising the expansion of apprenticeships and, and the whole higher education it's sector as well. It's an awful lot of money. And yet today we have Pascal Donoghue telling us about 219 billion in state debt going to go to 48,000 per person this year. Does that actually matter in many respects? Should we just continue to borrow whatever we have to and spend the money, spend our way out of this crisis? Well, I think when you have a huge collapse in, in private demand, yet the state has to step in. That's what we've done in healthcare, uh, massive investment in healthcare. That's what we've done to support many social protection measures, 10 billion euro there. And we've budgeted for over 17 billion euro in additional spending this year to support the very people we're speaking about so that we actually uh, protect lives and livelihoods uh, and ensure that uh, many of our businesses and employees are ready to get back to work uh, when, 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 our, when, when we can get into a post-pandemic yeah, I mean, uh, position. The announcement today was welcome. And what's important to note is that the minister announced that the cost of servicing that debt is actually falling. That is the important thing. We can service the debt. So what we need to do we need to ring fence our COVID-related debt for 2020, 2021, 2022, and you finance that, that debt through ECB and European Union borrowing over the longer term. Then you need to look at the investment that we had to make prior to COVID, all the issues that the election was fought about, healthcare, housing, childcare, broadband, the just transition, meeting our climate obligations. Mm -hmm. You look. You have to look at what investment you need to make for that. I look forward to reading the National And is that going to mean that there's going to have to be higher taxes paid? There is. We, I mean, we need to plan now for the additional taxes we need to raise in the longer term to fund the level of services Let we Let me want. go back to Michael Healy Ray on that. Do you regard that as inevitable that there's going to have to be increased taxes from individuals, companies, wherever, to pay for all of this? Well, the first thing I'd say to you, for instance, and for example, remote working is going to be a big thing in the future. And in particularly in places like County Kerry, I could see us taking that to a great advantage to our county. For example, if you take Sneem, we have a, a, a new hub uh, centre in Sneem and enhancing and improving on hubs in locations like that where people can have affordable housing a good quality of life, a safe environment to rear families. We can promote our county. I know that our local authority will be working very closely and diligently in promoting remote working. And we can make rural areas uh, hopefully vibrant again 
if the government will stop attacking us, for instance, like trying to stop us burning turf and timber in our homes. Our Michael, don't be on that now. Tell me about the money. Where's the money going to come from? Would you be prepared to pay extra taxes? Well, I'll put it to this way. People, whether they're in rural areas or urban areas, we've always paid our taxes. And we'll continue to do that. And remember one thing about people that make money. People that make money have no problem in paying taxes. Where you have trouble in paying taxes is when you're not making any money. So at the moment, we have businesses, as you know, shut down left, right and centre. We want to see those businesses up again, open up again. And I would remind the government we, and the government that... Yes, the restart grants were very welcome, but that money is now spent. OK, you I want to come back briefly to Jack Chambers, and I want to ask you, while the government is firefighting in relation to the health system, looking to vaccines and the rest of it, are there people actually planning for what comes afterwards for the reinvestment that's going to be required? Absolutely, and that's why I referenced the National Economic Plan. We also are updating the, the whole capital programme. Minister Michael McGrath is updating the whole capital investment and the National Development Plan. So we want to embed the change we mentioned around the just transition around new housing targets uh, and, and around investing in a lot of the services and balanced regional development. So we actually stimulate the economy, bring opportunity and employment in a post-pandemic Ireland. And that's why that's really welcome. So I think it's really important that we don't become fixated on the deficit. And one thing the government can do immediately to broaden our tax base, increase our tax take, is look at tax breaks and tax reliefs. OK, unfortunately, I'm out of time. That is all we've time for. Our thanks to Michelle Murphy, Michael Healy, Ray and Jack Chambers. I'll be back on radio tomorrow afternoon. The Tonight Show back next Monday evening at 10 o'clock. For now, stay home and stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.